you're staring down at the gutter, not up at the stars too much as a homicide detective, I guess. Yeah. The twist with uh, snipers is that they're under so much pressure because I can't think of any more pressure than uh, you're under where you've, you've got someone in your sights yeah. and you're going to uh, going to pull the trigger. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, I'm delighted to say that we have back on the podcast Gary Jublin, one of Australia's best-known investigators, former New South Wales policeman, who is with us today mainly because he's sat down for weeks and months and written a book. Gary, welcome to Life and Crimes. First thing I want to ask you is, why would you do it? Why would you write a book? It's a lot of work. I, I wish someone told me that before I wrote it. Andrew, how are you? Um, I never had an intent to write a book. It's something that people had suggested in the past, and that I, I think that plays out because of um, the, some of the higher-profile investigations I've, I've worked on. But the circumstances that led me to leaving the police, there was a lot, a lot of narrative going around about who I was and uh, you know, what happened. And it was at that point in time I thought, well, yeah, I want people to understand what I'm about. Um, there's a misconception of uh, different things uh, that was said about me in the media and it was sort of uh, very high-profile... Um, I'd say execution, but that's probably too dramatic. But uh, very high profile in the fact that uh, I'd been criminally charged. I was a, a, a detective, a high profile detective, and uh, facing criminal charges and removed from investigation. So on that basis, I thought, well, this is my side of the story. And uh, that's what I said about uh, writing the book. It's been about a 12-month project. Uh, one of the, the good decisions I've made and one of the first decisions I made after I left the police is to write the book with uh, Dan Box who was a, uh, uh, a crime journalist and uh, who I knew and uh, knew me so that was a, a good mix and uh, I trusted good his, choice I think yeah I trusted his integrity and also the fact that he knew me well enough to call me on my bullshit so in, yeah, in that I mean that uh, if I wanted to gloss over something, he'd delve deep into it, and I think that right. that mix worked quite well. But uh, yeah, it's certainly a uh, a big task, as you would know. Two heads are better than one. I have worked with Dan Box uh, back, sort of. Well, we were both younger. I was younger, but I was middle aged, and he was a young reporter. And I, he always impressed me. Yeah, quite sensible, sane, and shrewd. I thought. Yeah, yeah, he's a good voice of reason. That's for sure. He is. Now, what what is it that just we've got listeners here who don't know you that well? What's the case against Gary Jublin, according to Gary Jublin? Well, that's interesting. Well, if I said nothing, you probably wouldn't let me get away. With <laughs> I that, wouldn't would believe you? it. <laughs> yeah. no. Okay. What what do the um, bad people say about you? Uh, look, the the narrative. I, I suppose I polarise people, um, and that the people have strong strong opinions. Whether that's good or bad, I, I don't know. Um, with the fact that uh, when allegations were made against me whilst I was a serving police officer and the fact that uh, that information, the internal investigation, was uh, deliberately leaked to the media caused me a great deal of concern because if, at the worst, you could say Gary Jubelin is the detective, now disgraced detective, that was uh, removed from the Tyrrell investigation and uh, has been criminally charged for uh, breaches of the Listening Devices Act. Um, Gary, can I interrupt? Uh, I don't want to be um, accused of pouring warm fluid in your pocket at all. Yeah. I don't really know you. Yeah. Uh, I only know you a little bit by reputation. But what we're saying here is 
and tell me if I'm wrong, you yeah. interviewed a good suspect, I would say, I would suggest, in the William Tyrrell case, that of, of course is the case of the small boy who vanished and clearly has been abducted. You interviewed a, a middle-aged man who lives nearby who could, on any reasonable view, be someone of quite a lot of interest because of where he lives and various other aspects. He was as good a suspect as anybody else you could see that week. You interviewed him, and because you were concerned that the listening devices that you knew were already in place, you also recorded the conversation on your mobile phone. Is that roughly it? That's roughly it. Yep. This isn't actually uh, indulging in child pornography, is it? No. You, you, I mean, you, you oh, haven't yeah. been caught selling heroin to children. <laughs> no, and I, no. I, uh, I, I'm glad we clarify that because, uh, you know, when you hear someone's recording stuff on their phone, you're thinking you could potentially uh, think the worst. But it was the conversations I recorded was on a, a police issue phone that uh, when I was speaking to a person about the abduction of William Tyrrell, that yeah. I had concerns that certain allegations might be made against me, so I recorded those conversations to protect my lawful right. interests. Now, your people in your uh, own jurisdiction know a lot about this. Our listeners who heard us last time know about it. I just wanted to clarify it because by skipping it, we might give people the impression that you are some sort of reformed bad guy, Yeah. whereas in the view of any rational civilian... You are not bad at all, I would suggest. So yeah. let we. Do, I just wanted to clarify that because if you were a really bad guy, we wouldn't be talking to you. <laughs> well, I'm glad to glad to hear that. No, the charges and uh, I have been convicted at the local court. No, local court matters. Um, are breaches of the Listening Devices Act. My interpretation of the legislation is not what was accepted by the courts. But uh, the thing is, Andrew, that. Uh, with these allegations, now, the conviction at this stage, it's still a matter before the appeals court, but uh, there's no suggestion I was doing it for any personal gain. I was doing it during the course of my uh, my duties, and uh, it's something that uh, I, I've disputed from the outset, but because of the headlines, the way headlines can be, it's a, uh, a detective charge, and that's not a good look. That's not a good look for a detective on a high-profile investigation to be removed and charged in relation to something that he was doing during the course of the investigation. So it's important that I give my side of the story so people can make their own judgment. Did they try to get you for jaywalking as well or uh, not indicating when turning down bush tracks or anything like that? It certainly felt that way. It it certainly felt that way that, uh, and this evidence played out in my uh, court hearing at the local court, was that... uh, I made no secret of the fact that uh, I had recorded the conversations and people were aware of it for 12 months or more that uh, the conversations were recorded. You must be a Jekyll and Hyde character because I don't detect in you any of that sort of blustering, bully, standover stuff that some people might detect in some rogue police. Um, Are you a Jekyll and Hyde character? No, I'm not a Jekyll and Hyde character. I take... Yeah, well, some people might say I'm always a pretty bad bloke. Um, but look, when I'm I'm working a case, I, I work the case hard. I make no excuses for that. But uh, I've been in the New South Wales Police for 34 years. I haven't had any uh, uh, criticism of me the whole time that I've been in the police. And there's been no complaints. And then uh, all of a sudden, this I'm, I'm so bad that I get taken off the investigations and put into a room for uh, three months. It, it seemed quite 
ludicrous to me the way that this matter was dealt with from the outset. It seems to me, to put a line under that, that this sounds like office politics, and uh, which is bad news. It seems to be prevalent in police circles a lot, a lot more than it should be. And so what we'll do is get on and talk about the things that you joined up to do, and that is to catch the real bad guys who do bad things. That'd be good. Um, and I take it that your book goes into some of those cases, Gary. If you were steering me towards the the good bits, which bit would you steer me toward? Well, the book I Catch Killers is, is my memoir. So it's about uh, allowing, I hope, that someone that uh, reads it would get an understanding of who I am and, and what I'm about and why I approach investigations the way that I, the way that I do. Yep. One investigation that's played fairly heavily in throughout the book, and it's because uh, I, I suppose I've been on it for 25 years, is the murder of uh, three Aboriginal children in Barraville. And, uh, oh, yes. That's been a case that uh, I first became involved in back in 1998, and uh, I was still involved in it up until, my, um, until I resigned from the police in uh, 2018. And... Uh- Terrible case in many ways. And for those that aren't familiar with it, it's uh, three Aboriginal kids, um, Evelyn Greenup, Colleen Walker and Clinton Speedy. Uh, They all lived in the same street in uh, Barrowville, an area that was referred to as a mission on the outskirts of the town. They were Aboriginal children and they disappeared over a uh, five-month period of time. And there was an original investigation. I was brought in to do the reinvestigation, and, and uh, I found that investigative opportunities had been missed in the original investigation. And uh, I've been um, working with the families. When I say I, I'm always talking about a team because um, yeah. it's a team effort in major yeah. crime. Yeah. We've been working with the families uh, for the past 25 years trying to get them justice. So that plays heavily in the book. Um, other cases that uh, reference is um, the murder of Terry Falconer, which... Some people may or may not be familiar with the the name, but uh, that was a a prisoner that uh, was abducted whilst on day release by three people purporting to be police officers. Um, Oh, yes. That was a very interesting case because we really delved into organised crime and a a very um, dark side of of the underworld. Um, Terry Falconer was a a police informant, and uh, so we're looking at uh, when we first started the investigation out... uh, out a real who's who of the uh, criminal underworld that might have had yep. a motive to uh, kill Terry. And he was abducted and uh, he was actually um, cut up and uh, dumped in seven bags. So it was a very brutal crime. Oh, my God. But that investigation opened us up and linked us to other investigations. And at the height of um, that investigation, uh, we were looking at eight other murders. And uh, it actually played out in the Underbelly TV series. It was uh, Underbelly Badness that yep. particular investigation, and uh, that took 10 years, and that was probably one of the most um, complex-type investigations that I've worked on because we were the moves that we were making, there was a ripple effect. So we yep. had to, uh, for each action, there was a reaction, and uh, it was a very difficult investigation, but one that uh, we got some good results in the end, and uh, it's something that myself and my team are very proud of. Unbelievably dramatic um, scenario, isn't it? It it it, it was it was, and uh, yeah, there was during the course of the investigation, there was other murders that occurred that uh, we ended up uh, putting some people away. There was a 
a uh, person from uh, Victoria, Paul Elliott, that uh, was uh, killed and uh, we charged, and this was caught up in the whole investigation, we charged uh, people with his murder as well. Oh, is that right? I take it, by and large, it's ultimately drug-related. They're drug traffickers at bottom, most yeah, of these guys. It, it, it crossed over into all aspects of uh, crime. We had um, uh, bikies, uh, yep. uh, certainly drug dealing. Um, there was armed robberies. There was arson. Paul Elliott, was, uh, he had a reputation for uh, being a criminal down in, uh, in Melbourne and uh, yep. that was over a drug deal that uh, yep. went wrong, went sour. So we, it tapped into a lot of different, uh, different groups, but it was a, a very interesting investigation. I think you've had a lot to do with a police sniper and marksman, Brett Pennell. Can you tell us a bit about his work and... Um I think you're going to interview him in your forthcoming podcast. Is that true? Yeah, Brett Pennell is going to be uh, the first uh, guest on the second series of the podcast, I Catch Killers, and uh, tells a very interesting story. And uh, when I sat down and spoke with him, very honest and very raw, um, he was a sniper. He was a tactical police officer in New South Wales. He was a member of the TOU and... uh, there was a, uh, a siege situation down in the Riverina area that uh, Brett was the designated sniper and uh, as a result of how that uh, that played out, uh, Brett was the person that had to take a shot at the uh, the person and, uh, and killed the person in the uh, siege situation. And uh, it's very raw and very rare and uh, I, I thank Brett for his honesty on uh, talking us through it and it gave a real understanding of the pressures and the the demands on uh, someone in such a demanding role as uh, that of a sniper and a tactical police officer so that's uh, that's one one of a a number of guests we've got on uh, the podcast and we're looking at um, different areas of um, policing the criminal justice system we've had uh, other uh, other uh, police that have come on but also members of the public victims and uh, and offenders a troubled young woman her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it's an interesting scenario that the the sniper who is trained and then sometimes ordered to very calmly uh, and dispassionately to pull the trigger on another human being as opposed to doing things in the heat of battle to defend yourself, which is a different a different thing. It must be a unique form of pressure certainly the way brett described it was that um all the training so it becomes you know the muscle memory and the training that you revert to under pressure but the uh the twist with uh snipers is that they're under so much pressure because i can't think of any more pressure than uh you're under where you've you've got someone in your sights and you're going to uh going to pull the trigger yep at that particular point in time to carry out the trade, the trade of being a sniper, you've got to remain calm, and it's almost yes. like a, uh, a, a, a it's a contradiction. At oh, totally. The most time of most pressure, you've got to be your most calm, and uh, 
Brett explains it very, very well and, and in a lot of detail and then quite open about the uh, the impact it's had on him since uh, uh, since he, he has taken that uh, that shot. And uh, full credit to him. I, I think he, you know, someone to put their hand up for that position tells me a lot about the person to start with and uh, that he's prepared to accept that type of responsibility. So, uh, yeah, rather impressive human being. I look forward to listening to that because I think it would be a, a big insight into a, a relatively rare thing in civilian life. Yeah. Um, rel- relatively rare. Now, let's run through it. Um, you're recommending the book to me, a reader. I am a keen reader of these sort of things, the, the better versions of them. Um, not all true crime, uh, Gary, is that good. <laughs> uh, some of it's better than others. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking yours is. You're setting what me else? up for a sales pitch. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, what's the, what's the next most interesting story? What the book gives you, and uh, when I, I sat down and uh, talked with Dan about what this book is all about, and uh, there was something that uh, we hung on to about uh, every investigation takes a little bit out of you and adds a little bit to you. And what we hope to achieve with the book, and I think where the listener will find it a little bit, uh, sorry, the readers will find it a little bit different, is that it really shows what it's like to be a homicide detective and the price that you pay. And the price that you pay in each job does take that little bit out of you. And uh, we've really tried to get that across. People that have read the book have said it's very raw and honest, which scares me as the the author. But um, that was the beauty of uh, sitting down and doing a book with uh, Dan in that, uh, as I said, he didn't let me um, skim over any, any part. Some of it was difficult talking about it. But I think it gives you a full appreciation of what uh, life is like for a uh, homicide detective. And uh, and look, this is just my story. There's Everyone's got their own stories. But yeah. um, I have been around long enough and been exposed enough in, in the public to be comfortable to actually say, well, this is who I am and this is why I've made those decisions. So when you say that uh, some true crime novels mightn't work, what we've tried to steer away, it's just not an account of I did this investigation and this person got 10 years and all that. It's more giving an insight into the psyche of uh, how we operate. And some of the most interesting parts of the book, I think, is in the interview room when I'm sitting down interviewing uh, suspects. And uh, I'm fortunate that these matters have been dealt with at court, so it's public record, so we can get the full the full interview and the full transcripts out and it gives you an insight into the strategy and the psychology of the uh, interview room, which I don't think people often uh, get exposed to. No, I think it's always interesting for us out in the world to hear the answers that the accused makes and to hear, to some extent, the rapport between the interrogator and the accused. It's yeah. A fascinating relationship, which would vary depending on on a lot of things <laughs> on the time on the time in the interview, probably. And we've we've tried to uh, give examples of interviews with different approaches, the the the, the way that I approach, um, yeah, different type of offenders, yeah, um, which such such as. Well, there, there's one particular uh, of, offender in there that. He murdered a, a person to abduct the uh, the person's ten year old uh, daughter, and uh, oh, right. he, he's good luck. Uh, yeah, Jeffrey Hillsley. He's he's a scum, 
Yeah. Uh, he's in jail for, for life. And uh, the way that I did that interview, he was trying to uh, shock me with some of these admissions and, and bait me. And uh, in the book, yep. it shows how I, I dealt with that. There was another interview that I did with um, a lady that uh, was responsible for the death of a, uh, a, a young uh, 18-month-old child. And it was basically her denials that led to the conviction. And uh, so diff- different ways of approaching uh, approaching interviews. Oh, I see. And a full range of methods and attitudes from you. Uh, as a, Some you would adopt a more robust attitude and others you'd be conciliatory and draw them along into conversation. Is that... Exactly. And uh, we'll take you into the interview room and uh, like uh, it's... I don't think people often get to see inside the interview room, even uh, even aspects of the interviews that I did during the uh, William Tyrrell uh, investigation are uh, captured in the book because, again, they're, they're public record by and part because of my trial and that they, they were released there. And another side of the book that... Uh, I've when I I do speak to people, they always find it interesting the relationships that uh, I have with criminal informants, and uh, I've I've got some very interesting characters uh, characters in the book that have, have played a big part in my life and uh, a big part in some major investigations, and uh, I think people would be surprised by the relationship uh, that police have with informants, and I I don't say the word lightly because it is a relationship that these are people that I've dealt with in real pressure situations um, where they've got to trust me and uh, I have to uh, trust them. And uh, I think the the public would be amazed the type of uh, relationship that forms. Uh, and when I say relationship, appropriate relationship, because I know that there's, there's been relationships in the past between police and informants that are inappropriate. They're all above board, they're all accountable, but uh, it's an interesting dynamic that... Again, it's something that people don't generally get to see. Very tricky one because really you do need a, a level of personal trust and and sometimes more than trust even, sort of yeah. that somebody actually feels loyalty to the other uh, in order to be able to do what they do. Exactly. And there, there's one, one example for a, uh, a particularly uh, high-level informant wanted to know where I lived because he'd put his life in my hands. He wanted me to put my life in his hands, if that makes sense, and uh, basically said, uh, where do you live? And uh, I pushed back a little bit for obvious reasons, and uh, he said, well, if you don't trust me, how can I trust you? And uh, on on that basis, I made the decision to um, uh, provide him my home address, and uh, I'm still here, so it it, it was the right decision. I've, I've had other... Other references in the book about uh, when uh, threats have been made towards myself and uh, how I responded to to those, um, which is part and parcel of being a police officer. Looking back over it, if you were, you know, in another many years, you're a grandfather and you're um, sitting back and telling teenagers, perhaps, uh, about what the work you used to do in the bad old, good old days, what was the sort of scariest time? I've I've had some uh, like there's the emotional uh, you know the pressure situation and that that can be you know at two o'clock in the morning when you're being called out to a murder scene and you're going to make a, a a decision on are you going to charge this person let this person run or whatever I feel pressure like that. There's other examples and uh, you know I also uh, did a lot of tactical policing so um, that was with the SPSU and uh, the tactical response group and that was. Um, 
siege type situations or arresting arm, armed defenders. So I, I did some work there and close personal protection. So you get you get some interesting times in uh, in those activities. There's other things that and there's uh, one particular time I can remember that and it's referenced in in the book that uh, a drug um, job where some uh, a plantation was on crown land and so we're on what could be called the police stakeout and uh, the offender unleashed a couple of attack dogs and uh, chased me and uh, an offsider through through the bush and it was a covert operation so we couldn't scream like we wanted to scream um, but I had a uh, junior officer in another location um, uh, keeping observations and after the dogs left us because we went at them with some uh, big sticks he was attacked by these two attack dogs and uh, he was about 100 metres away and I heard uh, some gunshots and then I heard him screaming my name and I, I ran towards where he was screaming and uh, it was thick bush and he, he came through out through the bushes. I, I'm coming in the opposite direction. He was His chest was covered in blood and uh, I thought... And we were 45 minutes away from not only our police car but any, any help. It was in a remote location. And yeah. I thought he'd been shot in the chest and I, I thought he was going to die on the spot. And uh, he'd actually, in fighting with the dogs, when he's tried to shoot the dogs and actually uh, shot some of his fingers off. Um, so oh. that that was a pretty traumatic uh, traumatic situation. Oh, my God. But, uh, there, that is traumatic. Do many dogs stand up to gunfire? You know, if they hear the gun, most of them run. When I was doing tactical policing, we were given mm. uh, like a OS spray, a gas spray yep. that... Uh, if because quite often we'd be creeping up in the dead of night or early hours of yeah. the morning in the dark and you're climbing over back fences and it's amazing what you find. Yes. I uh, I was I had a shotgun and uh, we were kitted up and we're doing a doing a raid but and I was coming in through the back climbing over fences and I climbed over one fence and then I had a rottweiler about six inches from my face just growling at me because uh, it was covert I couldn't shoot him and I, although I did, didn't want to shoot him but uh, I was <laughs> in a bad position and I, I, I reached down and got my spray out and sprayed him full on in the face from about uh, yeah, six inches away Yeah, and he's looked he's just shaking his face and then he continued growling at me so I've uh, I've pushed him away with the butt of my uh, shotgun and, uh, and just got the hell out of the backyard so I think it, uh, they might have just given us that, that spray to tell us that it's all right, the dogs will uh, take off, but it had no effect on him. He just looked more angry than... Uh, that yeah. is very scary. Yeah, yeah. There, there's plenty of situations that you find yourself in the, in the uh, police and the start of the book is about a situation where I'm talking to someone um, that we wanted to arrest for an armed hold-up and uh, as I was talking to him, he was shot and uh, killed and... Uh, yeah, that that weighed heavily on me too. That was early in my in my policing, and uh, so things like that. Um, yes. Yeah. It all, it all adds up. It all adds up into uh, yeah. When you join the police, you don't know where it's going to take you. But one thing I would say that, uh, yeah. and it certainly come out from the book, you're going to be a different person at the other end than you were at the start of your career. Well, that's that's true. Uh, do any of these things come up, crop up in dreams? Do you ever have nightmares about any of these situations? Look, I, I don't wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night and you know have a flashback to this or, or that. But sometimes, and it, it's more when you're ongoing pressure that uh, 
and especially if you're dealing with a particularly nasty crime or whatever, you 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 just get a sense of um, you feel dirty if that's a, you're just dealing with too much evil, and uh, that's how it impacts on on me sometimes. Sometimes I think I just don't want to speak to another scumbag. I don't want to hear about another reason why this person's been murdered. And sometimes, uh, yeah, it you just don't you want to see the the good in society, and sometimes. Yeah, being a homicide detective, as long as I I do, you you tend to look at the bad parts. But uh, you've got to remind yourself that uh, yeah, that's not the whole world. That's a small portion of the world. You're staring down at the gutter, not up at the stars. Too much as a homicide detective, I guess. Yeah, police are human, and it must be very hard on them. Well, obviously, is Gary. Uh, it's been a privilege again to share your memories and thoughts. On this occasion, it's to tell people that you have done the book. I've read the uh, promotional stuff and read the, the what we call the blurb in the trade. It's very sharp. Uh, it attracts the eye. I'll certainly be buying one, as you might expect. Uh, as I said before, I don't buy them all. Um, they don't all grab me. Some, I think true crime can be fascinating at one end of it and unbelievably tedious and amateurish at the other. Yeah. It's a very broad church, but I think uh, you'll be at the good end of it. Oh, I hope so. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks again. Gary Jublin. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman. A dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.